Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is the last Flyover Country episode before CrimeCon 2023, and will return to my home state of Minnesota. This case got worldwide coverage because one of the crime spree victims was a famous fashion designer, but the killer started his path of destruction in Minnesota before ending in Florida. In less than a month, I'll follow the killer's path, minus the crime part, as I travel from Minnesota to Florida for CrimeCon 2023. But before we get to the episode, let's cover the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Interstate 35 bisects America from Texas all the way to the shores of Lake Superior in northern Minnesota. One of America's major roadways, it passes through six states, and if you add the smaller highways that extend at its north and south terminus, the road connects the U.S. borders of Mexico and Canada on one continuous drive. From the south, it begins in Laredo, Texas as U.S. Highway 83, and then passes through San Antonio, Austin, Oklahoma City, Wichita, Des Moines, Minneapolis, and in Duluth it continues as Minnesota Highway 61 to Grand Portage and the entrance to Canada. In Minnesota, the drive from Minneapolis to Duluth is a quick two hours, and many Minnesotans use the interstate to access the area of the North Shore or to meet up with other roads that take them to a cabin, resort, or campground in Minnesota or Wisconsin. Just north of Minneapolis, the area of Rush City is seen by many as the entrance to cabin country. The pine forests and clear lakes are a great escape from the busy urban area that exists just to the south. Major crimes are rare in this part of Minnesota as people are more apt to spend their evenings drinking a six-pack and roasting some s'mores in the fire. But in 1997, a murder on the banks of East Rush Lake was the second of four murders before the suspect would gun down one of the most famous fashion designers of all time. This is the story of Gianni Versace and the one-man crime spree that led to his death. Andrew Philip Cunanan was born on August 31, 1969, in National City, California. He was the youngest of four children born to his father, Modesto Cunanan, who was a Filipino-American, and his mother, Mary Ann Shalaki. Modesto was serving the U.S. Navy in Vietnam when Andrew was born, and after his service, he moved the family to California, where he became a stockbroker. Andrew was an extremely intelligent child, and after it learned that his IQ was 147, he was enrolled at a private school for gifted students. It was said that Andrew was doted on by his parents and showered with lavish gifts to include a new sports car when he turned 16, designer clothing, and they even gave up the master bedroom in their house so he could sleep in it, complete with his own private bathroom. During his high school years, he gained a reputation for being a prolific liar and would always embellish stories of his family's wealth and social standing. He came out as gay in high school, and after graduating in 1987, he was given the title of least likely to be forgotten. 
And just real quick on Andrew's childhood, we're going to touch on this at the end of the episode a little bit as well. But from all of the reading that I that I could find, Andrew grew up in a, a situation. Uh, his father was extremely abusive towards his mother, but his mother was deeply religious. So I'm assuming that something like divorce was not an option for her as she suffered this physical abuse at the hands of Modesto and Andrew often witnessed this physical abuse and so they've got you've got this melting pot of psychological things going on here he's he's being told his entire childhood that he's destined for this for greatness he's going to become this amazingly rich and popular person Again, the, his parents give up the master bedroom in the home so that Andrew can have the biggest bedroom in the house complete with his own bathroom. And I didn't see how much older his older siblings were. It just said that he was the youngest of four siblings. Oftentimes in families, the the, the youngest child, the quote-unquote baby, is, is treated differently or for, for some reason, I don't know if it's psychological on the parents' part, they tend to baby that child for a lot longer into their life but it, it appears that that was the case with Andrew for almost his entire childhood he got whatever he wanted so I guess the term spoiled brat comes to mind but on, it was more than that I mean there, there's there's kids that are spoiled and they can obviously get some type of an attitude but it was more than that with Andrew as I said he's witnessing abuse he's being told he's going to achieve greatness. He's never told no uh, his entire childhood. And it wasn't enough for him just to be this extremely intelligent kid that was getting everything he wanted in his life. Uh, his, his embellishments, he would tell people that his family was royalty from overseas. He would tell people that his father was this super rich stockbroker that was one of the top stockbrokers in the country. Basically, he was that one up on everybody else. And he's he's attending this prestigious school. So he's with a whole bunch of kids who are coming from extreme wealth. They are coming from extreme social standing. And he's not really, I mean, his, his father makes okay money as a stockbroker, but most of the money the family's making is being spent on Andrew's schooling and on all these gifts for Andrew and everything like that. So he, he's not of a family that has a ton of money and we're actually going to find out they have less money than than they even want to admit to and so in, instead of just you know, either staying in the shadows or just being happy with the, the situation he had in life he had to compete against these other kids and he chose to make up these lavish lies and these stories to make it seem like he was even more wealthy and of a higher social standing than than his classmates and he would go on after high school to attend University of California, San Diego for college, pursuing a major in American history. But while he was at college, his father came under investigation for embezzling a large amount of money, and to avoid arrest, Modesto Cananen fled to the Philippines, abandoning his family. I read online that this was like something in the realm of $100,000, which this is 1988, so it's probably closer to a quarter of a million dollars that he's embezzled. And it didn't say what this money was embezzled for, but I'm gonna assume that this was money that was used to 
support this lavish lifestyle that Andrew wanted to live. These, these sports cars for gifts, the, the fancy designer clothing, uh, everything that, that Andrew wanted he was getting. And, and I assume when Modesto ran out of money from his actual salary, he started embezzling money uh, from people that had invested stocks through him. Uh, and as a result, though, he's going to flee to the Philippines and leave his family that was used to this lifestyle that they couldn't even sustain on Modesto's salary, he's just going to completely abandon them, which it said it left the family destitute. So not only do they not have any money, they're in debt, they're, the father is under investigation for embezzling all this money, and this is going to be a, a major changing point in Andrew's life. Andrew had started dating older, rich gay men while in high school, and this is kind of a continuation of what his parents did. He would date these older, rich gay men that would then shower him with gifts and cash and everything. Now, the term, and I don't like to use this term when I talk about victims of crime. I'm not so concerned about using it here. I just I just don't like the term itself, but but the term prostitute is thrown a lot with Andrew or or gigolo, uh, male prostitute. It's it's he was much more somebody willing to sell his body for this lavish lifestyle that he could live. And he, it started in high school and again, this is something that he experienced growing up. He obviously associated attachment and some level of either nurturing or even all the way to love via this spoiling of him. So he, he seeks out romantic relationships in which he is going to be spoiled as a result of being in these relationships. Uh, and again, some people would call it you know, him looking for sugar daddies. Some people would call it him just flat out being a male prostitute. I don't know that there was any evidence that he specifically sold his body for a certain amount of money per sexual act that he performed. I think it was more that he was with people he wouldn't be with if it wasn't for the fact that they supported him financially. And and then that's that again, we don't often refer to women who date older men that are uh, rich that give them a lavish lifestyle we don't usually refer to them as prostitutes we should refer to them as gold diggers or something along those lines so again i don't know what you would actually call what andrew is doing compared to what many women do as well as far as the terminology for it but basically this is going to become his lifestyle late into high school and then early into college and after his father left he started frequenting gay bars and his mother who was a deeply religious italian american woman was strictly against his behavior and tried to confront him one day the argument turned physical as andrew shoved his mother hard enough into a wall for her to dislocate her shoulder it was an early indication of his propensity for violence especially when he felt something was not going his way. After his fight with his mother, he dropped out of college and began living with a good friend of his named Elizabeth Coate and her boyfriend Phil Merrill. While living with his friends, Andrew continued to seek out older, wealthy gay men for companionship and gifts. He spent a lot of time in the gay-friendly communities of San Diego and Scottsdale, Arizona. 
It is reported that he supported himself through money he was gifted from his relationships, as well as making violent adult videos. He was also known to sell street drugs and went by many different names during the early 1990s. So this time period in Andrew's life from the late 80s into the early 90s, this is his quote-unquote party phase. And there was a lot of people, a lot of his friends came to his defense, a lot of the friends in the San Diego area saying he wasn't either a high-class male escort or a prostitute because he was always in the bars on Friday and Saturday nights, which is prime nights apparently for, for these male prostitutes. And he would always be picking up the tabs for everybody's food bills and liquor bills and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of his friends just saw him as somebody who wanted to act like they had a lot of money. They weren't really sure how he was getting money, whether it was from selling drugs, whether it was from making these violent adult videos, or whether it was from the money that he was getting for these relationships. It's probably a combination of all of them. And he also had a couple credit cards, as we're going to find out here, that carried some pretty high limits for the time. And he's going to max both of those out. So it's, it's kind of a combination of spending other people's money, spending some money that he's making, but then also spending a lot of money that he doesn't have. In December of 1995, Andrew was in San Francisco and met a man named David Madsen in a bar. David was an architect from Minneapolis, but the two of them hit it off and soon started a long-distance romantic relationship. However, after a few months, David called off the relationship due to him feeling that something wasn't quite right with Andrew. It was a bad feeling he got about Andrew's personality and life decisions. And this is something we do see. I mean, when, when people fall in love, a lot of the times you look past a lot of the flaws in the other person. You ignore red flags. You explain things away to yourself as oh it's, it's not a big deal but as time goes by if those red flags either get bigger or don't go away um, you start to learn more about this person you start to see some behaviors that are giving you these bad feelings i mean again andrew comes off he's very charming he's got these great stories about how he knows all these famous people his fa family is rich He's, he's living this lifestyle that doesn't really exist, but he sells it well. But with people like that, eventually those facades break down. When, you, when you're close to somebody, you're going to get to know them in moments where they might be truthful or they struggle to keep up with all the lies. And all it takes is a little bit of crumble of that facade and somebody close can start to see that Andrew's not who he claims to be, and that shadiness, that darkness about Andrew's personality is why David broke off their relationship. This crushed Andrew, as according to friends, David was the love of Andrew's life, and he took the breakup hard. He continued to date men that would financially support him, and often spent his boyfriend's money faster than they could make it. He lived for the party life in San Diego, and was known to almost everyone in the gay community. No one knew where his money came from, but he spent a lot of money picking up multi-thousand dollar bar tabs at high-end bars and often paying 50% tips on the tabs. The excess lifestyle started to catch up with Andrew as his drinking and eating habits led to weight gain. He was no longer the fit and attractive young man, and his image had been replaced by a bloated, tired, run-down looking man. And we do see that, I mean everybody experiences this when you're in your late teens early 20s you can go out drinking most nights you can 
sleep three, four hours uh, a night over the weekend and Monday comes around and you're bouncing out of bed and, and ready to go and you look just the same as you did on Friday. As you age, as you get into your mid to late 20s, uh, the metabolism slows down, all those calories that you're consuming from the drinking and the extra eating start to add weight to you. He's doing a lot of prescription and street drugs at this point. That, uh, the lack of sleep, the lack of good nutrition, all that kind of stuff is going to start to take a toll on Andrew. And and we've all seen the, the pictures and the posters where this is what someone looks like and then after two, three years on meth or some other drug or two, three years into a drinking binge, this is what they look like. I mean, it is night and day what some of these people look like over the course of a, a couple years of abuse on their body through substance abuse. And that, this is what's going on with Andrew. So while he was young, he was able to attract these wealthy older gay men looking for this young attractive male boyfriend and as he's now aging out of that he's not the fit and sexy man he used to be he's struggling to find people that are willing to financially support him and so it's just this, it's this downward spiral this this cycle where because no one is treating him like he used to. He goes even harder into the drugs and the alcohol and the, the party lifestyle, which then makes him look worse, which makes it look harder for him to find a relationship, which causes him to continue with the, the drinking and the drug abuse. And after maxing out the last of his credit cards, some of which carried a $20,000 line in credit in 1996, so that's roughly $40,000 worth today, Andrew decided to fly to Minneapolis to reunite with David Madsen and another friend who lived in the area named Jeffrey Trail. And, and so again, he's in his mid-twenties at this point, and he's probably in the equivalent of a, of a kid in their mid-twenties at this point, sitting on roughly eighty dollars to $100,000 of credit card debt. And if you have credit card debt, you know how difficult it is to get out from underneath that. The interest rates alone that you're paying, if you're just paying the minimums. And, and as far as I can tell, Andrew doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a way of making money other than potentially selling drugs or selling his body. So it's not like he has a steady line of income that he can pay off these credit cards every month or, or make large payments towards them. So. He is now broke and beyond broke, he's in debt, and he's gonna make this last ditch effort to try to turn his life around. And this Jeffrey Trail was a formal naval lieutenant who had met Andrew when he was stationed in San Diego. After leaving the Navy, he had taken a job with a propane gas delivery company and settled into the Minneapolis area. But by mid-April, something happened between Jeffrey and Andrew that Jeffrey described as a falling out and he was scared for his life. And nobody really gets into detail, and it's very difficult to track these two relationships. It's clear that David and Andrew had a romantic relationship uh, that started back in late 1995 but ended in early 1996. Uh, this relationship between Andrew and Jeffrey is a little more obscure. Most places it just said that they met in San Diego. Jeffrey was also gay. 
and moved to the Minneapolis area after his time in the Navy, uh, settled down, he had a boyfriend in the Minneapolis area, so I don't know that there was a connection between Jeffrey and David, that they knew each other. Uh, there, There is going to be a connection once Andrew gets to Minneapolis, but I didn't know if there was a pre-existing one. I couldn't really find the, the kind of the web diagram I needed to connect a lot of the people in Andrew's life. So we'll just go through what we know of happened in April in Minneapolis. On April 24th, 1997, with two maxed out credit cards, he had to ask for a credit extension to purchase his plane ticket to Minneapolis. Andrew arrived in Minnesota on April 25th and stayed with David Madsen that evening. The two dined together and went to the Gay 90s, which is a famous gay nightclub in Minneapolis. On April 26th, Andrew stayed at Jeffrey's apartment as he was out of town with his boyfriend, but upon returning to Minneapolis, Jeffrey told his boyfriend that he needed to have a serious talk with Andrew. They arrived home to an empty apartment on April 27th, and at 9 p.m., Jeffrey left to go talk with Andrew, who is now back at David's apartment. And as I try to keep track of the dates of this, (laughs) this does get a little interesting because Wikipedia actually says that this crime is going to occur on April 26th, but about four or five other articles that I researched all said that it was April 27th that the crime occurred. So again, it's going to be sometime either April 26th, April 27th that this crime is going to occur. And it's going to read in a couple of the articles that Andrew called Jeffrey from David's apartment to come over and have this talk. Now there was never again a real good explanation of what this talk was going to be about what the relationship between jeffrey and andrew and david even was as jeffrey had told some of his friends and family that he needed to have this serious talk with andrew so i don't know if it was something where you know it did say that jeffrey didn't want andrew to come to minneapolis so maybe it was something where there had been a relationship between jeffrey and andrew jeffrey broke it off and and andrew came to Minneapolis to try to win David back and Jeffrey maybe took Andrew coming to Minneapolis as a sign he wanted to be with him again there's it's just not really clear all the connections that are going on here but we do know that Andrew called Jeffrey to come over that evening to David's apartment the investigation revealed that Jeffrey was likely let into David's apartment around 9 45 p.m. Within minutes, that conversation turned to yelling, and around 9.55, neighbors reported hearing 45 seconds of very loud thuds as the walls shook. It was later determined that Andrew had taken a claw hammer and bludgeoned Jeffrey to death in front of David. He then rolled Jeffrey's body up in a carpet and put it behind a sofa, and he had likely threatened to kill David if he tried to call for help or leave, and Andrew's reign of terror had begun. What happened over the next two days was originally quite a mystery for investigators. Neighbors in David's apartment building would later tell investigators that they saw David and Andrew together in the elevator and walking David's dog in the two days after the murder of Jeffrey. But on April 29th, one of Jeffrey's co-workers, concerned for his welfare, stopped by the apartment to check on him. He found the apartment unlocked, and upon entering the apartment, he found Jeffrey's badly beaten, lifeless body in the rolled-up carpet behind a sofa. Minneapolis police were notified of the homicide and the start of the manhunt for Andrew had begun. And again, I didn't understand the concept because they're at David's apartment. So I don't know unless Jeffrey's co-worker got a hold of 
Jeffrey's boyfriend who said, hey, last I heard from him, he went over to David's apartment. Maybe they all knew each other. So it was not a big deal for this coworker to be, okay, he's over at David's place. I'll go and knock and check over at David's. Uh, again, this, this is one of those cases where there's a lot of material out there, but a lot of it is just surface level. Here's the crimes. Here's who was harmed. And there's not a lot of backstory to, to any of this. And because David had been seen walking with Andrew, because David had been seen walking with Andrew after it was believed Jeffrey had been killed, investigators initially thought both men re were responsible for the murder and considered them both strong suspects for the killing. And so, as we mentioned, the neighbors are seeing David and Andrew in the elevator together. They're seeing them outside walking David's dog. So to them, there was nothing out of the ordinary about the way that Andrew and David were acting so when police find that there's a dead body in the apartment that these men have been staying in, they have to assume that David was in on it. At least that's what they thought in the beginning. And a search of the crime scene revealed that Jeffrey's watch had been damaged during the beating, likely while defending himself from the hammer blows, and it had stopped at 9.55 p.m. And so we talk about these defensive wounds. I think this is the first time we've ever seen where the defensive wounds kind of give a very accurate timeline. Now we do have the neighbors reporting this disturbance, so the police have a pretty good idea that something bad happened at 9.55 p.m. Um, on the evening that this crime occurred. But in this case, you know, as Jeffrey's being bludgeoned to death, of course, human instinct is that you're going to try to protect your vital organs, your head, and, and your chest area with your arms and your hands well on your wrist is a watch so it makes sense that if you're throwing your arms up to try to deflect these hammer blows one of these hammer strikes hits the watch and uh, destroys the mechanism stops the watch basically captures the time of that of that crime and a duffel bag with Andrew's name on it was found and it contained a box of 40 caliber ammunition with 10 rounds missing. So boxes of handgun ammunition, it's pretty common to sell them in 50 count boxes. So you're gonna slide open this box of ammunition. There's usually a little tray that all the bullets sit in and police are gonna look at this, see it's a 50 count box of ammunition and you're gonna clearly see that 10 rounds are missing out of this box. And they're gonna find out eventually that Jeffrey owned a 40 caliber handgun and so now they're putting together there's this box of ammunition there's 10 rounds missing and a gun is missing and david and andrew's whereabouts in the immediate days after the discovery of jeffrey's body are unknown to this day what is known is that on may 2nd they were seen driving north out of minneapolis on i-35 in david's jeep an eyewitness would later report seeing the two men eating lunch together that day on May 3rd, two fishermen headed out for the day on the lake, discovered David's body on the side of Rush Lake. He had been shot once in the back, likely while trying to run from Andrew, and then once again in the head with an execution shot. Investigators determined he had likely been shot in the evening before, which gave Andrew an overnight head start. And it didn't explain a lot about these fishermen finding the body, but it's pretty common in Minnesota. Most large lakes, uh, lakes are considered public for the most part in Minnesota. And so a lot of these larger lakes will have one, if not multiple, public launches. 
And these are usually gravel parking lots that you can pull off and then uh, it'll have a concrete ramp and a dock so you can back a boat into the water on the trailer, release the boat, pull the boat over to the dock, then go park your vehicle with the trailer in the parking lot and go out and head out for a day of fishing. So these parking lots are also convenient places for people to pull aside. Sometimes if it's a, a nicer public landing or a busier lake, they'll have picnic shelters and grills and everything at these public landings. So it's also a popular spot for people to just kind of pull off to have a picnic, pull off to have a talk or some type of a romantic encounter. And so it's likely that you know, Andrew and David the night before, this is a public place they can pull off and, and park for a bit, but something went wrong during their conversation or Andrew ultimately decided he was going to kill David. David figured that out and tried to run and gunned him down and then left his body there. If this occurred in the late evening hours, these public landings, these launches are usually most popular in the early morning hours as most people stop fishing and this is May so it's going to be getting dark or seven o'clock at night eight o'clock at night or so so pretty much after nine o'clock at night this public landing is going to be pretty deserted and so it's likely these fishermen would have come in in the early morning hours to head out to fish and that's when they found David's body. What police didn't know is that Andrew overnight had made the 400-mile drive to Chicago, Illinois. There are conflicting reports about how he selected his next victim. 72-year-old real estate developer Lee Miglin was tortured and killed in his garage. Some reports say that Lee's son Duke knew Andrew, while others say it was a crime of opportunity. Lee had been very successful in real estate and lived in an expensive area of Chicago. Investigators believe it's possible he drove around until he found an easy target. And this was really... A point of contention depending on which article I read. Some seem to indicate that the FBI was pretty sure that there was a connection between Andrew and Lee Miglin. Some believe it was through the sun. Some believe that Andrew knew Lee in some other fashion because the crime that he's going to commit against Lee is pretty gruesome and if, if Andrew just needed a vehicle or cash, valuables, whatever it might be. He didn't need to torture Lee, which is what we're going to find out that he did, because uh, there's going to be another murder that Andrew commits, his next one, where when he needs a new vehicle, he just simply shoots the guy in the head. And, and Andrew clearly had the gun at this point, so if, if his only intention was just to kill Lee to take items of value from him, he didn't need to do what he did to him. So again, there's there's speculation that there was more of a relationship. There was some level of, of hatred or passion, prior knowledge uh, that Andrew needed to torture Lee. But then there's also some people that believe that Andrew tortured Lee to gain information about cash or valuables that he could access to assist his evasion. But what we do know is Lee suffered a painful death. Andrew had stabbed Lee 20 times with a screwdriver, wrapped his head in masking tape, and then cut Lee's neck with a hacksaw. And Andrew had apparently run over Lee with his own vehicle at least five times during the incident. And oftentimes we refer to this as overkill. 
any of the these actions could potentially kill Lee, whether it's stabbing him with a screwdriver 20 times, whether it's cutting his neck with a hacksaw, or whether it's running him over with his vehicle five times, especially if you run over the head of the victim. Any of these behaviors alone, and then the, the suffocation of wrapping him up in masking tape, so four different ways that that Lee could have died, uh, what we refer to as overkill, usually indicates a level of passion in the crime. So that's where I think FBI and investigators believe if Andrew had wanted to kill Lee, even if he wanted to torture him for access to cash or valuables, he could have done it in a different way and then just shot him in the head and got what he needed and left. But it definitely seemed as if Andrew needed for some reason to put Lee through this this painful torture and what we're going to find out is Andrew has this psychological predisposition to cause harm to those who have wronged him so this is again why investigators believe there may be a little bit more to the story but if there was a link or a strong connection it's never been reported on. And after committing his third homicide, Andrew went into the home and prepared himself a ham sandwich. He ate half of it and then shaved his beard, found $2,000 in cash and some expensive suits, and loaded it all into Lee's 1994 Lexus. Andrew left David's Jeep parked nearby and fled the area in the new vehicle. This Lexus was equipped with a car phone, which was a luxury item in the mid-90s, and Andrew used it on several occasions. This allowed investigators to track the car, and on May 4th, they were able to pinpoint Andrew's location in Union County, Pennsylvania. Further activations occurred on May 8th in Philadelphia, and May 9th in the area of Penns Grove, New Jersey. So at this point, investigators knew Andrew was headed east. He's headed out of the, uh, out of the Chicago area, across Pennsylvania, and into New Jersey at this point. And it said they were able to track through this car phone, but I'm guessing that technology wasn't all that great. And it's something where they're getting this information maybe several hours to days behind when these calls are being made. I don't think it's anything where they're able to live track if he's if he's on this phone as to exactly where he is because they, they clearly struggled to find him. They had not located him yet. They just knew of areas that he was in on certain dates because of the use of the car phone. And that same day, the wife of a cemetery caretaker was worried when her husband, 45-year-old William Reese, did not come home after work. She drove to the cemetery and found his office door open, and he was inside his office deceased. He had been shot once in the head, and his truck was missing. Investigators would soon learn of the manhunt for Andrew and linked the bullet used to kill William to the ones used to kill David. And again, this is this is the a murder they believe had zero connection to to Andrew at all. It was a crime of opportunity. Andrew was likely driving by the cemetery, saw this red truck in the parking lot, saw this small cemetery office, assumed that there would likely only be one person in the building and unfortunately for William Reese, Andrew's able to walk in, shoot him once in the head, take the keys to his truck and he's on his way. There's there's no belief there's any connection between the two of them before this crime occurred and this is really going to be the only murder during this crime spree in which investigators believe the sole purpose of the killing is to 
obtain, in this case, a vehicle in order for him to further his escape. And Andrew had once again obtained a new vehicle, but this one couldn't be tracked. He made it all the way to Florida, and by May 12th, he was staying in a motel in Miami Beach. He was able to maintain a low profile and hadn't captured the attention of anyone around him. A month later, on June 12th, the FBI added Andrew to the top 10 most wanted list. Investigators in Minnesota, Illinois, and now New Jersey were desperate to bring justice to Andrew, and the FBI was determined to stop him before he killed again. But law enforcement was at a loss as to where Andrew had gone after New Jersey. And see, again, we're talking about 1997. Yes, the internet exists. Yes, cell phones, car phones, pagers exist at this time period. There, there is some mobile information, mobile tracking, as we talked about with this car phone. But we're talking about a time pre-social media. We're talking about a time before cell phones that have cell signal and constant access to the internet. It's very difficult for law enforcement at this point to track an individual. It's much easier today. We have such a digital footprint uh, today where we are constantly on phones, uh, hopping on the internet, where there's IP addresses to trace. There's, again, cell towers that investigators look at during crimes. There's more ways to get information out to people nowadays in terms of internet, the 24-hour news cycle, which had started again at this point. We just covered the case of, of Richard Jewell, which is the 1996 Olympic bombing. And, and again, that's this is just around that time period. It's the year, the, the spring following the 1996 Olympic bombing. Eric Rudolph is actively bombing places in the Atlanta area at this time. And, and then the 24-hour news cycle is covering that. So his information was out there, but it just isn't out there at the level that it would be today if this crime spree was going on. And Andrew also picked, you know, Miami Beach, and this is Miami Beach in in May and June. There's a large amount of people moving about the beach, a lot of young people, a lot of people Andrew's age. So he's able to elude law enforcement officials that are looking for him in America's major cities. Because again, they assumed, I think at this point, that he was probably in like the New York area because he's last seen stealing a vehicle from New Jersey. But in reality, he could have driven just about anywhere in the country. But by early July, Andrew had run out of cash and was getting desperate. He pawned an item using his own ID, despite knowing police had access to pawn records. A week later, on July 14th, Andrew checked out of his hotel without paying for his last night of stay. He spent the evening on the streets of Miami and committed his final and most notorious murder the following morning. And I think, again, this is, we have to remember the time frame. This is 1997. Yes, police are going to have access to these pawn records. I don't know how many pawn shops would have already been putting stuff on the internet at this point. I think it was going to be a few years before a lot of pawn shops are going to have databases that are hooked up to the internet that police can search looking for articles during my time as an officer we had access via a a pawn record system where we could put in somebody's name and if they pawned anything we would get an email Uh, we could enter an item in if we had a serial number of an item or if it was an item jewelry we could put a description in so if that item got pawned uh, we would get an alert. Uh, we often use these after 
car break-ins or burglaries or robberies where a specific item was taken and we're looking to see who's going to pawn it. But again, that was post-2005. This is eight years prior when, again, I don't know that a lot of these records would have been online. It would have been something where the police would have had to go to the pawn shop after the fact and bring up the, the pawn records, look at the security video footage, so at this time, they, they still don't even know what city's in. So yes, it's a risk that he took, but at the same time, as far as I could tell, this didn't raise any red flags. At 8.45 a.m. on July 15, 1997, Andrew shot fashion designer Giovanni Versace while the millionaire is walking back to his mansion from a morning walk to get magazines from a nearby shop. Andrew ambushed the old man as he was walking on the mansion's front steps. Using the same gun he used to kill David Madsen and William Reese, Andrew shot Gianni twice, once in the back of the head and once in the left cheek. The shooting occurred on a busy street during daylight hours, and several people witnessed the senseless surprise attack. One man gave chase to Andrew but lost him as the suspect ran into a parking garage. Police would later search the parking garage and locate William Reese's truck containing personal effects of Andrew and some newspaper clippings of his crimes and the manhunt to locate him. Gianni Versace was rushed to a nearby Jackson Memorial Hospital where doctors tried to save his life. Despite their best efforts, he was pronounced dead at 9.21 a.m. A swarm of federal, state, and local authorities descended upon Miami Beach. The entire world now knew the name Andrew Cunanan. He had killed five people in four states and was considered armed and dangerous. Police feared he would kill again, steal another vehicle, and be in another major city before they could find him. He would likely stop at nothing to gain more money and resources to continue his life on the run. And again, this is a real fear because Andrew has already killed all the way from Minneapolis through Chicago into New Jersey and now in Miami. So, I mean, he's covered a good portion of the United States and he was always one or two steps ahead of law enforcement before committing these murders. This is a very reactive manhunt where they are unfortunately kind of waiting until he strikes again. And so that was, I think, really the feeling after this July 15th murder of Gianni Versace was that it's just a matter of time before Andrew shows up in Texas or California or, or somewhere in the western United States having committed a murder and, and they know he's from San Diego so they're probably assuming at this point that he's going to try to make it home during this spree so again they're swarmed in Miami but they had to believe that he was potentially out of Miami at this point and on the run again then on July 23rd a caretaker of a houseboat that was moored in a nearby arena reported hearing a single gunshot as he approached the boat Law enforcement surrounded the boat, and after 14 hours, they entered and found Andrew Cunanan deceased from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He had used the same 40 caliber handgun he used to kill three of his victims to end his own life. His identity was confirmed via fingerprints, and in another odd twist, the houseboat he was found on belonged to a German fugitive wanted on fraud charges. It is unknown if Andrew knew the fugitive or had any contact with him, or just squatted on a random houseboat that happened to belong to a known criminal. Many people dissected Andrew's life after his crime spree to try and understand why he was driven to do the things that he did, especially committing the five murders. For most, it starts with his childhood. Andrew was told he was special and going to amount to something great from the time he was a young child. He was also witness to the physical abuse his father used against his mother, 
and this likely established a mental acceptance of violence to support desire. To meet his parents' aspirations of being rich and famous, Andrew chose to use his good looks to sell himself to older rich gay men that would shower him with money and gifts. One of his boyfriends gave him whatever he wanted, to include a car and a monthly allowance of 2000 which would be roughly $4,000 a month in today's money. And that was in addition to providing him a place to stay with no rents or bills, and his boyfriends took him on lav lavish vacations. But people would often grow tired of Andrew and his overbearing and untruthful side. He was often abandoned by those closest to him. His father left the family, his mother never accepted his sexuality, and most of his lovers would leave him once his charm had worn off. So by 1997, his life had hit rock bottom. He was hooked on drugs, was abusing alcohol, and no longer had the sex appeal that he had in the early 90s. There are reports that he believed that he was HIV positive, which would have been a death sentence for most in the 1990s, but it would later be revealed that his autopsy results were negative for HIV. And so this is something that's brought up in a, a, a couple of the different articles. And so there was some speculation at the time that he had told several people that he was HIV positive and this made investigators think this was one of those, well, if I'm going to die anyway, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory type of choices that there, he had gotten a wrong HIV positive pro, uh, diagnosis right before he went on this crime spree or he just believed in his heart that he had done enough intravenous drugs and had unprotected sex to the point that he likely believed that he had HIV and especially if it was from potential unprotected sex with an HIV positive partner most of his partners were older rich gay men and so there was a belief that part of his crime spree was going and killing these men that resembled or in his mind at least were responsible for making him HIV positive even though he really wasn't so again it's hard to get into his mindset we don't know exactly it's just we're working off of reports of what he believed at the time and and trying to get yourself in the mind of Andrew Cunanan and why he would go on this crime spree but it is likely that Andrew hit a breaking point in April of 1997, and when he flew to Minneapolis, it was a last-ditch effort to obtain the life he had always wanted. David was an up-and-coming success successful architect and can provide the next chapter of Andrew's life. His advances towards David were rejected, and Andrew likely killed Jeffrey in front of David as an act of dominance and control. It seemingly worked for two days as Andrew didn't fear going out in public with David, but ultimately he wasn't able to convince David to be with him, and David paid the ultimate price. The first two killings were personal in nature, but most people believe his next killings were killings of necessity to stay on the run. He had no money, his credit cards were beyond maxed, and he would need gas and places to stay. The money he obtained from killing Lee Miglin allowed him to stay on the run, and William Reese was killed for a new vehicle. The Gianni Versace murder is the most famous and arguably the most confusing of the murders. Some reports claim that Andrew met Gianni back in 1990 in San Francisco, and he would later claim that Gianni remembered him from a party they both attended earlier that year. But no one has been able to confirm those reports, however, people do believe Andrew held a form of grudge against Gianni for being what Andrew had inspired to be. Gianni was a highly successful, well-loved gay man. Andrew often bragged to people that he knew Gianni and the two of them were friends. It's 
possible that Andrew knew that killing a man like Gianni would gain him the infamy he is he had always craved. And acceptance is a huge part of uh, the psychology of Andrew Cunanan as well. Being abandoned by his father, being rejected for his sexuality by his mother. There's a lot of people that believe that Andrew looked at Gianni Versace and saw this successful man who was able to be open about his sexuality. Everybody loved him. He was world-famous fashion designer. And basically, he was everything that Andrew thought he was supposed to become as he became an adult. He was, Gianni Versace was everything that Andrew's parents spent their entire life telling him he was going to turn into. And instead of turning into this highly successful, well-loved gay man, Andrew had become this obviously extremely poor uh, guy with no friends and lovers that continued to abandon him and now he couldn't get new lovers because he wasn't this young sexy guy anymore so basically they were now polar opposites and at one point supposedly the two had known each other gianni had been friendly towards andrew now again these are all just reported incidents I think it's been said that Gianni's family has denied that that he knew Andrew or that these events occurred. Andrew was well known for making up stories. So that there's there's a possibility that Andrew made that all up, but there's also a possibility because Gianni was in the areas that Andrew frequented during the early 1990s that the two could have run into each other at a party. They ran with somewhat of the same social circles. And so, again, it is possible that Andrew just happened to aspire to be like Gianni, and when his life had hit the ultimate lowest point possible, he targeted Gianni out of jealousy and the inability for him to have obtained what Gianni did. Ultimately, the most accurate statement about Andrew was his senior quote in his yearbook. The 18-year-old Andrew had written, Après moi de la luge. And these words are attributed to the French king Louis XV, and it directly translates to after me the flood. But it is believed to mean after me comes disaster. And Andrew is many things, a liar, a coward, a murderer, but apparently he was also the master of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that is the case of Gianni Versace. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.